Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. The EM Cases Summit last year was such a huge success with more than 500 delegates from New York to Vancouver to Nigeria to Australia that we've decided to offer you the second virtual EM Cases Summit. This fully CME-credited virtual conference brings your favorite EM Cases guest experts to the comfort of your own home, doing talks, rants, professionally produced procedural videos, morning symposiums on rural medicine and other niche areas of practice, interactive panel discussions, and a lot more prize giveaways. It's going to be amazing. So please save the dates, February 2nd to 4th, 2023. That's Feb 2 to 4. There's more details at emcasesummit.com. We've already confirmed some of the world's best speakers. EM Cases Summit is back for round two. This podcast is an update on everything cardiac arrest since our big pair of podcasts on ACLS in 2015. Back then, we covered a lot of basics and got into some of the controversies, some of which are still controversies, and some of which we have better answers to in 2022. We're going to assume that you know the standard ACLS algorithms and know what some of those age-old controversies are. If you don't, please review the ACLS algorithms and episodes 71 and 72. And if you haven't listened to it already, episode 131 on PEA arrest with two of our guest experts on this podcast is definitely worth a listen before you delve into this one. So in these two episodes, rather than cover the algorithms and such, we'll concentrate on the nuances of several key and controversial aspects of cardiac care. In part one, we'll cover four of these, chest compressions, defibrillation, medications, and airway. And in part two, we're going to cover communication strategies, POCA strategies, hemodynamic monitoring fluids, mechanical cardiac therapies, and when to call the code. And this time we have not two, not three, but four guest experts. There's that much in the way of controversy on this topic. They've all been amazing guests many times before on EM cases, so no huge introductions required here. Three of them have experience as both EM docs and ICU docs, and all of them are passionate about cardiac arrest care. So welcome, Scott Weingart. Hey, how you doing? Welcome, Rob Samard. Hi, everyone. Welcome, Sarah Gray. Hi, everybody. And welcome, Burke Tillman. Great to be back, Anton. Now, throughout these two podcasts, I'd like you to keep in mind that the two goals in cardiac arrest care are first, ROSC, and then to perfuse the brain adequately to maximize the chances of survival with good neurologic outcome. This time, instead of starting with a case, I'd like you to just think about the last cardiac arrest case that you ran. Just think about that for a few seconds. And as we discuss the controversies, just think about what you could have done differently in that case. So here we go. The when, how, and why of cardiac arrest ED care management. 
First up is chest compressions. We'd be amiss not to talk about how to best perform high-quality chest compressions, since we all would agree that high-quality chest compressions are probably the most important part of cardiac arrest care. It's the one thing that we know pretty much for sure saves lives. So, Dr. Samard, can you tell us a bit about the when, how, and why of chest compressions in cardiac care to maximize chances of survival with good neurologic outcome? You know, there's depth and rate monitoring with these fancy devices. There's even just a metronome on your phone. There's chest compression coaches. There's pre-charging the defibrillator, minimizing pulse checks. I don't even know where to start with this, but how do we best do chest compressions? Yeah, absolutely, Anton. As you mentioned, probably one of the most important things in cardiac arrest is ensuring that we have almost near continuous CPR ongoing throughout the arrest other than maybe defibrillation, it's one of the big things that really makes a difference in terms of survival. So when I think of, you know, things that make a difference and the chain of survival of CPR, you really want to make sure that you're performing high quality CPR. And it's important to know what high quality CPR is. So for me, high quality CPR is ensuring that you got the appropriate rate, the appropriate depth, So we want to make sure that we're compressing the chest at 100 to 120 compressions per minute. You want to make sure that you're pushing deep enough, which is going to be two inches or five centimeters in your adult patient. And you want to make sure that you're allowing that full recoil so you allow the heart to fill up so that when you're pushing down, you're pumping that blood and perfusing the brain during that cardiac arrest. You really want to make sure that during that patient's downtime, you're getting as much flow as you can to the brain and you're perfusing as much as you can by doing this high-quality CPR. The other important things that you want to also make sure is that you're changing your compressors every two minutes. A lot of times people want to be that that hero that wants to continuously push on the chest and do CPR. And we all know that during those two minutes, if you're doing it effectively, that you're going to fatigue, you're going to get tired, your metrics are not going to improve. You're going to, in fact, get worse as you go. Even very fit people after 45 seconds of doing high quality CPR are going to start to slow down. So you really want to make sure that you're doing that good high quality CPR for that entire two minutes. And then you're going to switch out after the two minutes and get somebody fresh on the scene to do more CPR. All right. So those are some of the important things that we need to do in terms of the rate, the depth, how long, how to switch out. But how do, how do we actually ensure that those rates and depths and switching out actually happen properly? Yeah. So in order to help with the rates, you can use feedback devices, um, a metronome, a very simple feedback device. Uh, sometimes you want to sing in your head, like staying alive or another one bites the dust or smooth criminal, whichever one of those songs that are generally between hundred to 120 compressions per minute, that will help. If you're not really musically inclined, having a metronome beat hundred to 120 times per minute can really help you stay in tune to making sure you're doing the appropriate rate. I think the metronome is a very simplistic way of doing things. We have higher quality feedback devices that exist now that will tell you things about whether or not you're compressing deep enough, compressing fast enough, coach you through it by saying, push harder, push faster, allow full recoil that will verbalize to you how your CPR is going so you can change real time and adjust your CPR to provide the highest quality CPR to this patient. And in the absence of a feedback device, you can have a CPR coach whose main job is to watch you do CPR is 
you know, very experienced in CPR themselves and is able to coach you through the process to make sure that you're going deep enough, you're going fast enough and making sure that you're allowing that full recoil and also giving you that motivation of, come on, it's 20 more seconds until the pulse track, you know, give it, give it what you have to go that high quality CPR metrics that we need to get you through those last 20 seconds when your arms are burning and you want to give the patient the best outcome possible. All right. And of course we end up pausing CPR many times during an arrest. How do we minimize those pauses? Minimizing interruptions in CPR is so important. So there are some strategies you can use. So when your two minutes is up, a nice countdown leading to the two minute mark. So giving like a 10 second countdown when your two minutes is up, will really prepare your entire team to know that we'll be stopping CPR to do our pulse check or to do whatever we need to do during that interruption, whether we're going to defibrillate or do something with the ultrasound machine. So first things first, if you're potentially going to defibrillate the patient, you might want to pre-charge your defibrillator. So that's during those 10 seconds before you're going to stop. You're going to have the machine pre-charged up to your 200 joules so that you're not waiting during those 10 seconds to charge your machine. So you have it ready to go. And then obviously, if you don't need to defibrillate the patient, you can dump the charge. But if you do need to defibrillate the patient, your machine's already charged and ready to go at the start of that pulse check. Also, if you're going to do a ultrasound during that pulse check, it's super important that the person who's going to do the ultrasound to already have the probe selected, to already have that gel on the probe, and even to have the image somewhat in view. So like a sub xiphoid view of the heart or the ultrasound probe over a carotid pulse, anticipating the stoppages of CPR so that you already have your probe ready and you have your finger on the record button so that you can record your image during the 10 second pulse check so that you can review your ultrasound that you've done once CPR is restarted. All right. Any comments from anyone else in terms of any of these things? So there's the feedback machines, metronome, chest compression, coach, pre-charging the defibrillator, making sure that your POCUS is all set up and actually getting views before you do any pauses. Dr. Tillman, any comments about how to minimize pauses in chest compressions and how to ensure high quality chest compressions? I would say that I've used a lot of the feedback devices and do quite like them when they work. The largest challenge I sometimes see, aside from people trying to hit 180, 200 beats a minute, is actually the recoil, um, especially as we get more tired. And so I think, as Rob highlighted, the importance of changing off every two minutes because people start to lean onto their patients and then the chest isn't recoiling anymore. Also, harder to coach recoil uh, as you're trying to tell them to push harder, push at the appropriate speed. You're also saying, now let up. And it's just a harder idea to communicate in the moment, especially if your team hasn't had the opportunity to practice beforehand. And I'm sure Dr. Gray is going to uh, talk a lot about communication in the second segment. So I'm not going to hop in on Sarah's thunder there. I'll let her take over when we get to that point. And what about the location of doing the chest compressions? My understanding is that some studies suggest that we're way off on compressing actually over the heart and that there are some tricks to locating the heart exactly and knowing exactly where to compress the chest. Dr. Samard? 
Well, good point. So I have two things to comment about that. According to the Heart and Stroke Foundation, they want you in the center of the chest over the sternum, and they have some wonderful videos if you take a Heart and Stroke Foundation course where compressing the sternum in the center of the chest will allow the heart to compress, and when you recoil, it'll allow it to fill, to fill up. So there's some value in interlocking your hands and pushing right in the center of the chest at the level of the nipples, which is where they suggest you commence with CPR. However, if you look at some studies, especially some that use things like transesophageal echo, they can actually pinpoint where your heart actually is, and they can get you to adjust your CPR, you know, move a little bit more to the left side of the chest so you're compressing more over the heart, and they can actually look to see if the heart's emptying more real-time while you're doing CPR. So there's some advanced stuff you can look for when you do things like transesophageal echo to see if you're getting more output based on your hand location. So some interesting things to consider when placing your hands on the chest. All right, let's move on to mechanical chest compressions. The last time we talked about this topic on EM cases, I think we agree that the main role for mechanical chest compression machines is for the patient with a prolonged extrication time in the field or for, say, the hypothermia patient or the ECMO patient who might need like two hours of chest compressions. There are lots of advantages to using these machines, it would seem. You know, theoretically, you know that high-quality chest compressions will be performed consistently, so there's some cognitive offloading there. You don't need to coach a compressor uh, in that case. Um, They can potentially decrease interruptions to compressions. You can defibrillate easily while chest compressions are are ongoing. Those are just a few of the sort of theoretical advantages. What are your thoughts on the latest evidence for mechanical CPR? I mean, my understanding is that for in-hospital arrest, there's some evidence that's quite convincing that it's better than manual chest compressions. For out-of-hospital arrest, it's a bit more mixed evidence. What is the role for mechanical chest compression devices in 2022? Yeah, you know, this is a soapbox issue for me. It's it, Look, Rob gave a perfect description of how to get high-quality CPR with humans, and I agree with everything he said, except why involve humans in the mix? It just makes absolutely no sense. This is the perfect job for a machine. And once you have the machine in your department, and it's a one-time acquisition cost, it's not like the pads you need for the uh, CPR monitoring depth and compression where you have to pay per patient. If you buy one of these for 10,000 US, I don't know what that is in Canadian. $50 billion. (laughs) 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 And, And all of a sudden, your codes become calm, you don't need a ton of people to run them, and you could shock during compressions, which eliminates the most important pause, which is the peri-shock pause. And I, I just don't understand why people don't do it. It makes no sense. Now, people say, well, the evidence doesn't show it's superior. I don't need superiority. If it's equal, and I think no one could disagree at this point, it's at least as good in the settings where it's not really getting a fair shake, the pre-hospital setting. Um, if it's as good there, then that's it. You should just buy one. Now, why do I say it's unfair? Pre-hospital teams train on switch-offs, on uh, managing two minutes and then uh, having another compressor. They usually have an additional person whose only job it is to manage high-quality compression overview. We don't have any of that crap in the ED, and we're trying to extrapolate the pre-hospital data to the ED. I would think if a well-done study was done in the emergency department, mechanical CPR would be better, but I don't care. As long as it's as good, as long as it doesn't have an increased injury rate, there is absolutely no reason not to just offload this to a much easier way of doing it. All right. Here's one reason, Dr. Weingart. What about the time it takes to put the thing on? 
Yeah, that that is managed by just a little bit of training, far less training than doing high quality continuous compressions. Uh, you need to learn how to place the device while compressions are on the, going on the chest. There's videos on MCRIT. This is not hard. This is actually taken from the pre-hospital world where they mastered how to do this efficiently. And if you learn how to do that, then all of a sudden uh, you don't have to worry about that aspect. So I would actually disagree a bit with Scott. I like the idea of mechanical CPR. I've used mechanical CPR. It seems to make life much easier. So everything about it I like. Um, I just don't know that it works. So the evidence doesn't show it's better. There's not large enough studies to show non-inferiority, which is a much different concept to prove. And at least in the Canadian environment where CPR can be ongoing for half an hour, 45 minutes in the field, like if you're comparing a machine versus two or three humans doing CPR for half an hour, and those turn out to be the same, you're comparing the machine to exhausted people. Um, and you're going to say that if we have more people who aren't exhausted, it's not going to be inferior. I'm not ready to say that yet. Because I've seen how our crews come in. I've been out in the field doing CPR with them. And you come in drenched and sweat and exhausted. So until we actually have something that's going to show us that this machine will either improve outcomes or truly is non-inferior, it's harder for me to justify A, advising that we use it, or B, yes, it may not be a large cost. It's still $10,000 is a significant cost, uh, and that's at least $50 billion Canadian and a bottle of maple syrup. Um, but the other things you may be able to divert those funds to that have some evidence, be it some things to work on, our socioeconomic disparities, social workers, things that can truly improve the majority of care of our patients in the emergency department. I just can't quite get on the mechanical CPR train yet as much as, yes, having used it, I do love how much easier it seems to be. I think that there's a place for it. I don't think that mechanical CPR is going to replace human CPR. I don't think that this is something that we're going to see in the field anytime soon, although I could be wrong about that. I'm sure that there's going to be studies looking at this more and more. I think more studies are needed, and I definitely do see advantageous areas where we would use this more in prolonged transfers if I need to send from one hospital to another, getting this patient to the cath lab and even while in the cath lab if they're suffering an arrest, you know, when there's space that's limited, like when you're in the cath lab and you have that C-arm to get the fluoral going, to open up that vessel to put a stent in, you're probably not going to have someone capable of doing CPR in that time frame where you can easily just have the Lucas device uh, do the CPR for you. So I think that in certain situations, it has its place, but I don't think it's going to take over in all scenarios of CPR. And in fact, I would say that it's going to be used in very limited scenarios where it'll probably prove its worth. Dr. Gray, anything to add there? I want one. Uh, let's put that out there. I wish I had one in my Emerge. We have one upstairs in my, in uh, some of the ICUs upstairs at my place, but not one in the Emerge. And I'm sorry, when you're running a hypothermic cardiac arrest and you know your team's going to be doing CPR for the next God knows how long till that person gets warm, like, I want one. I keep putting it on the capital request list. Dollars are tight in Canada. So far, it's never gotten the thumbs up. Uh, but yeah, if there's any happy donor out there who's got $10 billion going spare, buy us a Lucas. I'll use it all the time. Yeah. So suffice to say that we probably need some more studies, but there are a lot of good arguments that this is at least as good as manual CPR. 
I would think that if we do encourage those who are deciding of what to spend money on, that it might be worth getting more of these into our EDs, get some RCTs going, and then see whether they, in fact, do have much of an advantage. It sounds like we definitely like them, but we still don't know for sure if they're the go-to. We can take this higher, higher. That's enough about chest compressions. Let's talk about probably the next most important thing or equally important thing in cardiac arrest care, and that is defibrillation. There are a few controversies here and some newer research on refractory V-fib. First, Dr. Samard, let's talk about the when, how, and why of defibrillator pad placement. What is the best pad position, the traditional left anterior chest and right axilla or the anterior posterior sandwich? I know that there's a, a recent Danish study that just came out in December 2021, I think, in circulation that at least for atrial fibrillation, that suggested that the traditional anterolateral is better than the AP sandwich for atrial fibrillation cardioversion. It's a little bit different when we're talking about V-fib and pulses VTAC. I see all different kinds of practice out there. What is the best pad position? How do you figure out what the best pad position is? And if the patient comes in with some funky looking pad position, how do you actually get it into the best position possible? Yeah, I personally happen to be a big fan of the sternal and apex technique of applying the pads very anteriorly on the chest in order to continue doing CPR while placing the pads on there. Unfortunately, if you're going to do anterior posterior, it requires you to stop CPR to roll the patient to put that posterior pad on. And in my mind, that's an unnecessary step to put the pad on posteriorly and stopping CPR unnecessarily. So in my opinion, I think that sternum apex is the way to go. I think that there's more emerging evidence to say that that's the way to go. And I also think that feedback devices, the way that they are set up, you can attach them right to the pad and our feedback devices attached in that scenario so that all three pads come in one bag, you put them on the patient, you have your feedback device right in the middle of the patient's chest, the hockey puck, we call it, and you push on the hockey puck and it gives you feedback device and you have your pads set up right on the anterior portion of the chest, one at the sternum, one at the apex. And as I mentioned, that's going to limit your interruptions in CPR. You don't have to rule the patient. In reality, though, my overall thoughts on this is as long as the heart is somewhere in between the pads, your defibrillation should work. And that is the key concept. If you have the pads on the patient's chest and the heart doesn't look like it would be in between where your pads are placed, you're probably not going to be successful with your defibrillation. The idea is that the electricity is going to go from one pad to the other, and it's going to pass through the heart along the way and change the electricity of the heart, hopefully into a normal sinus rhythm. So anywhere you place the pads where the heart's in the middle is going to work out nicely. Obviously, in your more challenging patient, the obese patient or the odd anatomy appearing patient, then you might need to fine tune and finesse that. But the apex sternum position should work and it should be your go-to in cardiac arrest, mainly because it limits the interruptions in CPR and it's been proven to be effective in many recent studies. Well, I think the most important part is not AP or anterior lateral, it's that those pads are actually contacting as much skin as possible. And oftentimes I'll come into a code and because the patient's chest is hairy, the pad will be hanging off the patient's chest. And it, so it doesn't matter where you stuck them. It's just not going to do anything. Um, either put on a new set of pads, which is very expensive, or I like to keep around a set of the old paddles, not hooked up to anything. We just keep them in the room. 
And if you notice one of those pads is hanging out in space, you could actually uh, push your body weight against the pads using those paddles. You can't get shocked. That's their entire point is you can't get shocked through them. And that'll give you skin contact. And if there's not skin contact, there's not going to be a good defib. Great. Okay. So don't throw away those old defibrillators. Let's say our VFib patient gets shocked in the field four times and they're still in VFib. Let's talk now about shock-resistant VFib or electrical storm. Uh, the data around so-called double DFib, so two machines shocking within about a second of each other, it's sort of mixed. So I'm very curious as to what your take is, Dr. Samard, especially since I believe you've authored some papers on this on this stuff. What's your approach to shock-resistant VFib and electrical storm? Yeah, Anton, I absolutely love this topic of refractory VF. I think that we don't know just yet what the perfect way of treating it is, but as more better studies come out with it, I think we'll have a clearer picture of what to do after you've shocked the patient three times, four times, five times the standard way, and you're still stuck in V-fib. And there's a few strategies around what you can do to help your patient out. One of the first things that I would like to emphasizes it's probably at this stage important that we stop the epinephrine and that you, if you're following the algorithm up to this point, you've probably at least given one dose, if not two doses of epinephrine. And if you're still in VFib at that stage, probably want to hold off on giving more epinephrine. And just to define refractory VF a little bit more, you're probably have shocked the patient with the standard VFib dose of shocking with at least three standard shocks of 200 joules before you're even in the realm of refractory VF. Some studies have looked at five shocks to be considered refractory VF, but at least three shocks of the standard way of defibrillating before you're in the realm of refractory VF. So if someone's bringing a patient into me from the field, has already been shocked three times, has received some epinephrine and are still in VF, at this stage, I'm stopping the epinephrine and I'm putting on a second set of pads and doing a dual sequential defibrillation for my next defibrillation. And if you don't happen to have that second set of pads, as Scott said, they're quite expensive. And what you can do is you can do a vector change. So you can take the pads that are currently in the apex sternum position and you can move them into the anterior posterior position. Ideally, a new set of pads would be better because they're going to contact better, but you're going to uh, switch the vector around, and it's all about the vectors. What you're doing is adding more insurance that the electricity is going to go through the heart is really all this concept is. Whether you're using two sets of pads or doing a vector change, you're just ensuring that vectors are going through the heart and you're increasing the chance that that is happening. And if you're doing the dual sequential, you're going to use two machines. You're going to press them simultaneously or near simultaneously at 200 joules each and you're going to hope that you can terminate that V-fib arrest into something like normal sinus rhythm. Studies have shown that, you know, if you look at some studies where they do very heterogeneous things, where, you know, they shock multiple times in a row or do CPR not to the standards that we do in North America, you're probably going to see that there's not a lot of value in the dual sequential, but in really well done studies, particularly here in Toronto, where our Toronto paramedics have been looking at this, where you're doing things in a proper protocol, where you're doing the ACLS guidelines and at very appropriate times, like not on the seventh or eighth or 12th shock, but after the third shock, you're changing to dual sequential. It looks like there's some promise to show that we can terminate V-fib on the first dual sequential compared to the next uh, standard shock. 
So it looks like there's some promising outcomes coming that dual sequential defibrillation for refractory VFib may very well be the way to go. We're just hoping that these uh, randomized control trials are going to show this effect so that in the 2025 guidelines, there's a stronger recommendation to use dual sequential for refractory VF. Okay. So currently the 2020 guidelines uh, do not recommend it, but it sounds like what you're saying, Dr. Samard, is that the well-done studies are really showing a good signal that they're is benefit and that it really depends on the timing of it that really you want to get that right after your third shock fails rather than in many of these studies you have patients that have been shocked way more than that and so you don't expect it to work if the, if it's on the 15th shock all right any comments about dual defib or double defib uh, before we move on to other uh, what your next step is going to be if if the dual defib fails yeah, you know, uh, Rob, your description was perfect, uh, but there is some confusion, I think, in people who aren't as astute on this stuff uh, as you are, which is the terminology sucks because there's two scenarios. There's the patient who is consistently in VFib, you shock them, and they're still in VFib post-shock, and that's exactly what you described, and I completely agree with your management. And then there's the patients who you shock, they convert to a rhythm, and then immediately regress back to VFib. In that latter group, double DFib is not going to do anything. And you didn't allude to the fact that it would, but I think there's confusion out there in most of uh, the people. Uh, and they put both of those in the category of refractory VFib. Double DFib does nothing in that latter category. The DFib was successful. They converted. It's just there's some nidus for continued uh, automaticity that sends them back into VFib. So only do it when, when you shock them, the post-shock rhythm remains VFib throughout. Dr. Sambard, could you just give us a little bit about the logistics of how to set it up? Because, you know, if you have a team that's not well-trained on this, I can imagine there being a lot of delays and then maybe pauses in chest compressions and some badness that comes out of just trying to set this up properly without experience. So any tips on how to set up your double defib in the best way? Sure. Um, one of the features that I really like to do when I have someone who's coming in, especially from the field in VFib and paramedics are bringing them into the room and they're telling me that this patient's been in VFib and we've shocked six times and they're still in VFib is I make sure that when we transfer them over to our emergency department stretcher, that the paramedics defibrillator remains on the patient in the orientation that the pads are currently on. And then when they come onto our table, we have the, def the paramedics defibrillator already on and working on the patient. And then we can just add our defibrillator pads from our recess rooms defibrillator onto the patient in the corresponding vectors that we would need in order to do a dual sequential. And we're lucky where I work that our paramedics have already been trained on dual sequential. So I have them work their own defibrillator. And then either I personally or someone who's familiar with our machine works our, our defibrillator so that we can do a sequential shock on a three, two, one, and go, which is both machines are charged at the same time. Once we have our pads, how we want them. And then when our machines are fully charged, we'll say, we're all going to press the button on the count of three and then one, two, three defibrillate. And we've, uh, essentially done our near simultaneous defibrillation as the way that I generally like to do it. Obviously, if there's a fresh arrest in the emergency department, it requires more of our own emergency resources which, you know, can be scarce at times. So obviously, if the patient's arresting our recess room, we have our recess defibrillator ready. And then we're calling for our second defibrillator from the other recess room to be brought into our room. Uh, what I can say is I've ran these types of arrests in other areas of the hospital, particularly radiology, where we're covering radiology. 
where I'll have to go out if there's an arrest in like the CT scanner. And what I'll do is if I only have one machine with me, I can still do this. So if we've shocked three times on my one defibrillator that we have, what I'll do is I'll just do a vector change myself or I'll take the pads off the apex sternum and I'll personally move them to anterior posterior and shock them as my my vector change defibrillation as the way to do it. And then just being a good communicator and walking people through it about what you want to do. Sometimes I'll have one person press both buttons. So I'll have them, someone who's familiar with this, press both of the buttons so that they know what they're doing and that they're going to press them at the same time so that there's not a big delay in the actual defibrillation. So having someone experience pressing the two buttons, whether it's going to be me or one of my residents or one of the other doctors who's familiar with doing dual sequential is really important. And if you do this enough, everyone kind of gets on board. And when they see how good the outcomes can be, they're really on board and will even suggest this the next time you're having a cardiac arrest. So I love everything you've just said there, Rob. The only things I would add from a room setup perspective are, number one, I find this much easier when both machines are on the same side, both defibrillators. It just means that one, a single person can do it if necessary. And two, whoever is the team leader can see both machines easily to make sure that the shocks are happening at the time they want. And the other piece around room setup is I always have my chest compressor on the opposite side. I've been in two cases now, one where the chest compressor coming off the chest tripped over the defib wires, uh, pulling one of the pads off the chest and injuring themselves, uh, which was suboptimal, but also significant challenges just in swapping compressors in and out when they're trying to navigate around the two defibs and all of the resultant wires that are there. So I make sure explicitly that both machines are on one side, compressor on the other, just to minimize uh, those physical hazards we set up in the room. Great logistical points. Where are the wireless pads at? It's 2022. Get us some wireless pads. <laughs> yeah, we've got wireless everything else. <laughs> Buddy, we work in Canada. We have no money. Yeah. <laughs> and now a message from one of our sponsors, North Bay Regional Health Center ED. In a world ravaged by COVID-19, trucker convoys, climate change, rush hour traffic, and hospital politics, your only hope is to come to North Bay Regional Health Center Emergency Department and join their high-performance team. There, you'll find a remarkable level of collegiality and fantastic work environment. You'll also find an incredible work-life balance where most physicians go home to a life on the lake. Make your world the way you'd want it to be. North Bay is where you want to practice. Check out their Instagram feed at northbay.er and their website, northbayer.com. All right. Let's say we have our patient who fails dual D, dual sequential defib or double defib or whatever you'd like to call it. Uh, what's your next step? Are you pushing esmolol, Dr. Simbard? So first and foremost, what I'd like to say is once you're going down the dual sequential route, in my opinion, every sequential defibrillation at the two minute mark, if they're still in VFib, should still be dual sequential. Uh, however, there's other things that you can do that can potentially be helpful. I mean, there's limited studies out there on esmolol, but I think that that's the logical next step. As mentioned, we've already stopped the beta, the we've already stopped the epinephrine. So now, if you're going to give a medication like esmolol, you can give like a 500 microgram per kilogram bolus of esmolol to your adult patient, and then continue to run your resuscitation. Hopefully, that esmolol will help that 
super excited electrical storm of activity that's happening within the heart to kind of settle down that uh, excitability of the heart so that your next defibrillation may be the successful one. So I think that's a reasonable option. I think some controversies are out there. Like when Esmolol first kind of became sexy and on the scene as one of the things to do in dual sequential defibrillation, refractory VF, we didn't have it at one of our sites. So just getting it down in the emergency department was somewhat of a victory in case one of these scenarios came up. But what about other beta blockers? Would metoprolol do the same thing? Is there other beta blockers that would be equal effective? I don't think we know the answer. I don't know if any of you guys have tried other beta blockers if Esmolol is not available. And not that we've studied Esmolol in great detail. There's only small studies out there so far. Uh, but any other thoughts on any other type of medications you can give in this refractory VF case other than Esmolol? So, so I've also only used, as far as beta blockade goes, I've only used Esmolol in someone who's fully in arrest. Uh, for a patient who would, we got ROSC and would intermittently return in the VFVT, I did use metoprolol in that case. And yes, it worked, although a different scenario. Really, in, in my mind, when we get into this, I'm in agreement with uh, Dr. Weingart's earlier part about there's something driving automaticity. Because I find a number of these patients are that second group that he mentioned. The Yashakam, they go out for a second, so the defib worked, and then they go right back in. There's an underlying drive, be it from a sympathetic surge or what else is going on. Um, so my thought is I'm trying to use this medication to try and turn that down. But the second thought in my mind is I hope I'm in a center that does ECLS uh, because I would love to get them to a cath lab as what is going to be the primary driver here. I actually don't work in an ECLS center, so that mind's that's always a thought in the back of my mind of a thing I can't do. So I end up using a lot of these beta blockers, and sometimes I'll pull out lidocaine and go the very old school way after exhausting all the ambul in the room. Uh, but I would sort of agree with what you said up the front is there's not a lot of evidence here. There's not clear evidence on what's the most superior drug. And really, it's treating what's driving the automaticity. And in a significant proportion of this population, it is an ischemic event. And I want to figure out what I can do to get into a place where ischemia can be fixed. Great point. So far, we've talked about arguably the two most important aspects of cardiac arrest care, high-quality chest compressions, and timely defibrillation. Next, I'd like to discuss all the various medications we might consider in an arrest. In 2015, we declared at the time that there was no medication that has ever been shown to improve neurologic outcomes at hospital discharge in cardiac arrest survivors. I guess my first question is, Dr. Tillman, is that still true in 2022? So I unfortunately think that, yeah, I have to agree with that statement still. Um, it does come back to how you introduce this topic is what we know that works for these patients is high quality CPR and decreasing their time to both initial CPR and initial defibrillation. Medications, on the other hand, are trying to sort of support you while you get the patient resuscitated and back to ROSC. But so far, we haven't figured out how to fix dead brain. One day. One day. That being said, and I think that's so important to understand before we get into all these medications, that there still is not any really good evidence that any drug we give is going to improve neurologic outcome at hospital discharge. 
there's quite a few that can improve ROSC, the chances of ROSC. Uh, so let, let's get into all of those. Let's start off with epinephrine. Now, the when and how and why of epinephrine in cardiac arrests has been mired in controversy. You know, it's it's supposed to help start the heart, but the vasoconstriction can actually decrease blood to the brain. So the classic argument against epinephrine is that it helps achieve ROS, but doesn't improve brain function or functional outcomes. Put bleakly, it's, it keeps people alive longer, but with terrible brain function. So it's just filling up precious ICU beds with adding zero quality of life to our patients. It looks like maybe the earlier you get it in, the more likely it is to help, but that if you give too much, you're probably going to cause harm. So many docs give one or two or three amps of crash card epi every three minutes, and then they stop there. There's also been a suggestion that an epi infusion might be better than boluses. You know, the ultimate idea being that you would titrate the infusion according to some kind of brain perfusion measurement, like infrared spectroscopy, which is a thing. While we know that epi improves the rates of ROSC, for years there was no data showing improved survival and good neurologic outcome at hospital discharge. There is the Paramedic 2 trial that came out suggesting improved survival. There's lots to talk about here. So Dr. Tillman, give us the kind of lowdown on the when, the how, and the why we use epinephrine in cardiac arrest. Certainly. So yeah, you've really highlighted a lot of the debate. I will start this by saying that I use epinephrine in cardiac arrest. I still give amps and epinephrine. Uh, I'm not very fancy about it. Paramedic 2, um, if you're familiar with it, did show the improved survival. There was some concern because the proportion of people who survived with a good neurologic outcome at hospital discharge didn't really seem to change. And even when you look three months down the road, there's no statistically significant difference. There are a number of challenges in interpreting paramedic 2, which have been discussed out there, one being just the time that these patients actually started into the trial. So if you're going to start giving epinephrine to someone about 20 minutes into their arrest, is there going to be really anything we can do that's going to change their outcome and hard to know? Uh, the second being the lower survival rate they had as an overall cohort compared to what we see in many other trials. So wondering about who these patients are relative to who are the patients we're treating. And the last is looking at the actual size of a difference in neurologic outcomes. And when you look at the three months group, the difference absolute between the two groups is what you would expect if epinephrine was working we just didn't have nearly enough patients. And that's an incredibly difficult study to do. So I think the most important thing is to really applaud these authors for addressing such a difficult topic uh, that has a lot of strong feelings as there's a reason why this is paramedic two, since paramedic one couldn't really be allowed to finish due to strong opinions. My takeaway from this is there there isn't evidence that epinephrine is harming people right now. Um, you are not going to be able to prove someone's neurologic outcome if they don't get ROSC. And there's a lot of debate about, are we giving a patient the quality of life they want? And I don't know what an individual considers a good quality of life or an acceptable outcome. I know what I consider that to be. 
Um, and as the patient's individual physician, uh, I would prefer to be able to give them and their substitute decision maker the opportunity to have a good discussion about their values and their wishes. And in some of these situations, that also means organ donation. Um, I don't do cardiac arrest thinking about the opportunity for that patient to donate, but I've talked with enough people who have said, this is an awful thing that's happened. I'm just so glad that at least this one good thing can come of it. So there are non-patient-centered reasons why ROSC is an important outcome. And there are also patient-centered reasons for the sole fact that determining quality of life, at least in my mind, isn't really my choice. I can tell the patient what we expect is going to come from this, and I can tell them what we tend to hear from what patients think, but in the end, the patient and their family knows their own values. I couldn't agree more, actually. I think that if you just accept that epinephrine can improve your rates of ROSC, and that's the first step in cardiac arrest care is to get ROSC, the second step is to try and get the best brain outcome that you can. You know, even though epinephrine has never been shown to improve brain outcome, I think all of that really comes down to the patient and the family's values. Um, And so it's very hard, I think, to make the argument that we should get rid of epinephrine because it doesn't improve long-term outcomes when we know it does improve your chances of ROSC. I'm sure other people disagree with me. Uh, Any comments out there? Dr. Weingart? Yeah, I want to just address one thing you said in the intro to this question, which is that it's increasing the number of patients in vegetative state. And that was an issue that Ilcor, who did an amazing job on their recommendations on this, actually specifically looked at. And when you look at the paramedic 2 data, that didn't happen. So you're not creating a host of patients who are rotting in long-term facilities, which if if you did, then I'd say don't do it. I'm not a huge fan of epinephrine. I agree with everything that Dr. Tillman said. Um, I think the problem comes that we conflate a whole bunch of various conditions under one rubric of ACLS. And sure, they break it out by rhythm. Even there, you can't have a homogenous take on epinephrine. I mean, I don't think anyone argues you should get at least one dose in PAA systole. That's easy. If I have a viable eCPR candidate, I'm not giving any epi to that patient by the time they get to me. If I don't have eCPR available, I still probably am not giving a lot of epi after the first couple rounds in a VFib VTAC patient. You could further subdivide those groups into specific circumstances and really find a, uh, a, a nuanced understanding of whether this has any potential to help or not. Uh, but the studies for these individual conditions probably will never happen. We know that giving it earlier might be better. Any practical tips on getting it in earlier? Any tips about when to stop? Any tips about, you know, maybe considering infusions? Any comments there? Personally, I'm more of a using epi as a limited amount as opposed to like it's an every three to five minute you got to give as long as you're running the arrest. I don't buy into that at all. If I am going to give it, it's going to be given, you know, after the second shock during VFib arrest, it's going to be given early on in asystole and in true PEA. It's going to be given as early as possible in those situations, but in in most cases, if I'm gi- I'm rarely giving repeated doses of epinephrine, I don't think I'm going to run a arrest at any point in the future where I give more than three doses of epinephrine. 
I'd have to have really strong feelings of why I'd want to continue giving up an effort in those cases. So I'm more of a limited use of it. Yes, I still give it, but mainly in the setting of asystole and true PEA, I'm giving it early and I'm using it very limited in V-fibres. I'll give it after the second shock. And then once I'm in refractory VF, I'm stopping it. Okay. I think we can all probably agree with that practical summary. All right. We didn't really get an answer to infusions. Anyone out there doing infusions of epi rather than boluses? I think that makes no sense. Uh, if you're going to do an infusion, then do an infusion that at least has some physiologic rationale. There's no evidence for it, but I, I think norepinephrine makes a ton more sense than epinephrine. I personally think we should be giving norepinephrine instead of epi for our cardiac arrest boluses as well. That study has yet to be done. There was one tiny one that showed non, well, it didn't show non-inferiority. It wasn't any worse in that study than, um, than epinephrine. And I think that has a lot of uh, potential. If someone would do a big paramedic three on it, they won't. Um, but my place, Michigan, we run basal norepi, not really for the arrest itself. It's it's homeopathic compared to the doses of epinephrine you're giving, but to avoid the scenario that when the patient gets ROSC and their epi has worn off and you finally get that sinus rhythm with a pulse for a second, and then two minutes later, while the nurses have been sent to the med room to mix up a vasopressor drip, the patient regresses back into cardiac arrest. All right. Yeah. Scott, we've talked about this before on, on EM cases, setting up a norepinephrine drip even before the patient arrives, getting it set up if you get the, the call in that a cardiac arrest patient has arrived. Um, and then whenever you're not going to be interrupting the important things, try and get that uh, norepinephrine drip going, you know, just start it at like 10 mics. And then as soon as you do get ROSC, you can titrate from there. I understand that there's actually been some recent evidence about this. Uh, so why don't we start with that? Dr. Tillman, could you just tell us about uh, the papers suggesting that norepinephrine infusion is better than an epi infusion uh, for post-ROSC patients? Sure. So this is a, a recent observational paper that came out trying to see what vasoactivation should we use. And sort of consistent with a lot of the other evidence we have looking at critically ill patients from cardiogenic shock to sepsis to you name it, norepinephrine seemed to be better. It's, it's really hard to know exactly how to interpret this evidence. I will say that, yes, norepinephrine is the vasopressor that I usually use. So this evidence fits with my bias and makes me happy. Uh, but the, the question whenever you look at an observational study is, why would someone start a patient on epinephrine? What's going on that makes that happen? And when you look at this evidence, you see the people who got epi were sicker patients. So maybe there was a bias that if you're sicker, we're more likely to use epinephrine. And yes, the authors used a number of different models to try and overcome this, used some propensity scoring. But for those of you who have a lot of interest in epidemiology and statistics, there's unfortunately still unmeasured confounding. You can never account for that with the propensity score. So we would expect the epinephrine people to do worse because they were sicker. And they did worse. Yes, you tried to account for it, but who knows if it's epinephrine actually is not as good as norepi. That may be what I think, but I can't say this proves it. Or is it just when people are really sick, we use epinephrine? I don't know the answer for sure, but I do prefer using norepinephrine. It's the drug that tends to be most familiar. I have a strong bias where if things are standardized as people working in high acuity scenarios, 
you're likely going to get it right more often if you do the same thing more consistently. Uh, and I like the pharmacology of norepinephrine and the way it divides its action on alpha and beta receptors. So I like all those things. Um, I just can't say for sure the evidence supports what I like. But yeah, I do run a norepinephrine infusion. And similar to what was described, that if I have the resources, uh, and that depends on what hospital and what time of day, in all honesty, then yeah, I'll start a norepinephrine infusion during the cardiac arrest. Uh, but if I don't have the resources, it's not something I'm going to prioritize over again. It always comes back to high-quality CPR and early defibrillation. The one vasopressor we haven't talked about uh, is vasopressin, which, as far as I understand, has actually been removed from the latest guidelines. Um, any reason to use vasopressin? I haven't seen it used at North York General ever, actually, but that's just me. Any situation where you would use vasopressin in a cardiac arrest? So I I started not using it initially, and then I started using it again, and now I've gotten to the point of I don't know what I'm doing with medications when someone's heart's not beating. This was my sort of change in practice was inspired by the VSE studies or the vasopressin steroids epinephrine studies. Uh, for those of you not familiar, there's a couple RCTs from our colleagues in Europe looking primarily at in-hospital cardiac arrest. Two of these three showed favorable outcomes, so that using this combination of vasopressin, steroids, and epinephrine, patients did better, uh, and maybe even suggested that neurologically they did better. Third study, not quite as optimistic, and so we're left not knowing what to make from that. Uh, the reason I use vasopressin, A, inspired by the first two studies, because they came out first, and also I like the idea of using a drug that maybe helps treat some of the vasoplegia we see in a cardiac arrest patient without really cranking up uh, how much adrenergic and beta-nergic stimuli they have. That being said, I can't tell you this changes outcomes and the evidence isn't there yet, uh, and it may never be there. So would I say that you need to use vasopressin or else you're doing something wrong? No. Would I say if I have someone who's sort of in a refractory, especially a, sort of a PEA, where maybe if I take a look at their heart, it is slightly beating and this is a profound vasoplegic place, I might add it into my norepinephrine-epinephrine combination. So it still sits there and it comes out every now and then. Um, at least that's what I'm doing right now. But I'd be interested to hear what everyone else in this podcast are doing. Dr. Weingart, your uh, take on vasopressin, ever use it still? Uh, sure. You know, if you don't believe in epinephrine, then sure, don't use epi or vaso. If you believe in epinephrine, then the evidence is at, I think it's indisputable. The evidence is better for VSE than epi alone. It's not great. I mean, I totally agree with every word Dr. Tillman just said, but it's better than epi. And yet people discount this entirely. We have no medications that have better evidence than VSE. It's probably the best researched combination out there. And yet we have no problem giving things like amiodarone and lidocaine with far less evidence. Uh, now, where's the downside? It's crazy expensive. Um, we could be putting that to social disparities. So from that perspective, I try not to waste uh, too much. But I have the advantage of actually reserving that combination for a specific scenario. I place art lines during every cardiac arrest. Now, Anton, your listeners are not going to be doing that in 99% of the cases. Um, and I could tell you exactly as Dr. Tillman alluded to, this patient has true vasoplegia, and there is no chance in hell 
based on their diastolic blood pressure, that they're going to have any chance of coming back from their arrest unless I could get more perfusion to their coronaries. And in that patient group, then I use VSE. Okay. So bottom line is there still is a role for vasopressin in a small subset of patients. You can consider using it. It's perfectly reasonable too. Uh, just because the ACLS guidelines have thrown it out doesn't mean we should throw it out completely. And they didn't say don't do it. They said it's really expensive. It adds task complexity. So until there's more evidence, hold off. Because ACLS is for dermatologists. It is not a course for us. <laughs> All right. I wish everyone could see uh, Dr. Weingart's face now. It's like full, complete seriousness, right, with that comment. <laughs> Even though it was like a very good joke. I'm laughing my head off. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. So we've talked about vasopressors. We've kind of talked to death vasopressors. Let's move on to antidysrhythmics. Let's start with amiodarone and lidocaine. Now, in 2016, the famous ALPS trial came out, uh, which we covered in depth in Journal Jam 7 with Justin Morgenstern, Paul Dorian, and Laurie Morrison. And the feeling at that time was that Despite amio showing no statistical significant benefit over placebo in refractory VFib and, and pulses VTAC, there was still a 3% difference in survival to discharge. And a subgroup analysis suggested that both amio and lidocaine were better than placebo, again, for witness out of hospital cardiac arrests. And amio is still in the guidelines, you know, after three shocks, give 300 and then 150 for the second dose. There's been some literature out there since the ALPS trial looking at timing of drug administration and a reanalysis of the trial. We all know that subgroup analysis we should be wary of. There's all these reanalyses. They're trying to pull something out of that trial that would give us hope that maybe these medications are good. Uh, Dr. Tillman, what does the literature show since the ALPS trial when it comes to amio or lidocaine for VFib and pulses VTAC for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Sure. So I think you were alluding to uh, the recent paper, which is one of these fun Bayesian reanalyses. It's the same thing you may have seen for Eolia, if any of your listeners are following the ECMO literature. And it's trying to look at a trial using a different framework to decide if something is beneficial. Uh, people who believe in Bayesian statistics sort of say it's using our previous evidence and our pretest probability to inform what we make of the results. And so using this method, Dr. Lane and colleagues suggested that there's a high likelihood amiodarone is beneficial in these patients who are coming in with a dysrhythmic cardiac arrest. What does this mean for us? Again, I'm going to say this till the cows come home. It's all about CPR and defibrillation. These medications are there to help us get the patient to an intervention they may need. So someone who has a dysrhythmia, I'm very concerned they have an ischemic lesion. 
as I said a bit ago, I don't have ECLS at the institution I work at, so I'm going to use anything I can to get this patient stable enough so that they can make it to a cath lab to be worked up. So based both on the way the subgroup analyses looked in the initial study and the way these reanalyses are looking, uh, amiodarone is still my go-to dysrhythmic agent. Let's talk about some other medications that we sometimes consider in cardiac arrest. Uh, I want to talk about bicarb. One of our all-star residents, uh, Victoria Myers, did a great EM quick hit on bicarb in cardiac arrest. She suggested that Bicarb should be reserved only really for those hyper-K-related cardiac arrests, the sodium channel blocker overdose, cardiac arrests like massive cocaine overdose, for example. Some docs give bicarb routinely for patients with long downtimes. Dr. Tillman, what's your take on bicarb in cardiac arrest? Say for the patient with a long downtime, you know, you know they're really, really acidotic. Any role for routinely giving bicarb in long downtime patients? Should we only be reserving it for those hyper-Ks and those sodium channel blocker presumed cardiac arrests? So I do use bicarb for long downtime arrests. I know it's not standard in the algorithm. I do consider that if someone has a extreme acidosis, the likelihood of getting a biochemical situation in which they can obtain ROSC is pretty low. Uh, when you look at the bit of evidence there is out there, most of this time-related stuff is all subgroup and sensitivity analyses. And yeah, the subgroup analysis may say that people who have a long arrest and then get bicarbolate do better than people who have a long arrest and don't give bicarbolate. But it's, it's such a hopelessly confounded situation there. Like, why are you doing a longer arrest on that patient? Well, clearly you're continuing CPR because you think they have a chance of ROSC. And now why is an intervention being performed? Well, you think it's going to work. So it's hard to know what to make of the evidence in bicarb. Uh, we're going to talk about calcium shortly, where I think the evidence is a bit clearer, thanks to some great investigators. But in my situation, as long as it doesn't overwhelm with task complications, and I work at an academic center, so I have a million extra hands because I am spoiled rotten, I will use bicarb. And usually by the time I'm involved in their care, it's pretty late in their cardiac arrest. So if you have an arrest and I'm there, you're probably getting bicarb. All right. We have, we have two other intensivists here who I'm sure want to chime in. Bicarb, yay or nay? Yeah, I'm not sure. I must say, I am. I think I'm using less of it than I used to. There certainly are the clear indications, like hyper-K, like wide QRS complex, uh, cocaine. The evidence is non-existent, and while it used to make me feel better, like I understand the theory that I'm supposed to be making them more responsive to my pressors and you know shifting their pH and doing all these great things. I am not sure in my hands it ever made a difference. And so I, I must say my bicarb use is reducing and I'm waiting to see what evidence comes out. You know, I don't know the answer and I'm happy if somebody could tell me what the answer is. It looks like Scott wants to tell you. Yeah, someone have to justify a physiologic basis by which this works to even get to the point where 
evidence would make sense. This is a closed system. In fact, it's beyond the normal closed system. Closed system referring to the idea that if you could exhale extra CO2 than you're already doing, then bicarb works. And if you can't, in study after study, not great studies, albeit, but study after study, um, they actually don't improve their pH. Cardiac arrest is the worst of the closed systems because there's actually an arterial venous dissociation. And you could try bagging that patient to get rid of excess CO2, and it does nothing to the venous side, which actually represents what the cells are seeing. So this is the least rationale-based time to give bicarb. I don't think it works for any acidosis in which the patient can't blow off excess CO2, but this is potentially the worst. Every bit of evidence on closed system bicarb shows no benefit. So I don't see why we're doing this during cardiac arrest. Okay. So for bicarb, we can say there's no good evidence for it. It is controversial still. Some intensivists seem to like it in certain patients with prolonged downtimes. Some others do not. So it's really a judgment call. Before we leave medications and move on to airway, we have one more medication that's a consideration in cardiac patients, uh, in cardiac arrest patients, and that drug is calcium. What is the when and how and why of calcium? You know, should we use it routinely? Should we use it only for patients that are obviously hypocalcemic, uh, like massive transfusions, or obviously hyper-K, uh, or calcium channel blocker overdoses? Should we be reserving it just for those patients, or should we be giving it sort of routinely? And if we do give calcium, should we be giving calcium chloride, calcium gluconate, how much of it, when should we stop? Dr. Tillman? What's your take on the when, how, and why of calcium in cardiac arrest? Yeah, so this question, I guess, relates to the COCA paper I alluded to earlier that just came out, I believe, last year now. So another well-done study basically randomizing people to get calcium or not for their cardiac arrest, uh, excluding people who had a clear indication for calcium. So those are primarily our hyperkalemic patients. And they demonstrated that it didn't seem to have a benefit. The trial was actually stopped early due to this appearing futility. And so when it was stopped early, there was concern that potentially there may have been some harm associated with calcium. It didn't get to clearly see that, but sort of given both a, a signal that it doesn't seem to make any difference versus a placebo and the potential that this actually does make things worse and I know at least when I was in medical school, we learned about the potential phenomenon of stone heart, usually in a polypharmacy situation. Calcium has fallen out of my use for sort of the undifferentiated cardiac arrest, clearly still using it in patients who I suspect are hyperkalemic or are like a massive trauma who I'm giving a lot of blood to, so their calcium is going to be super low. So it's not that I won't use calcium in cardiac arrest, but rather... I'm much more judicious in my use of calcium as I used to be. So hopefully you have a better idea of some of the evidence for various drugs we might use in cardiac arrest, when and how and why to use them. Let's move on to airway management in cardiac arrest. Now, we know that airway is not the first priority in the vast majority of patients. Again, high-quality chest compressions and defibrillation usually take precedence over airway. Nonetheless, doing the airway right in cardiac arrest is of paramount importance. So first, let's talk timing. So let's say your team is you and two nurses, 
and your patient arrives via EMS and cardiac arrest with bag valve mask ongoing. When, during the resuscitation of a cardiac arrest patient, should we ideally be doing advanced airway management, like placing a supraglottic airway or, or an ET tube? Dr. Weingart? Yeah, look, I don't care very much if you have continuous hand tidal CO2. Do whatever the hell you want. You could bag them. You could put a supraglottic. You could do intubation. They're, they've all been shown to be pretty much the same as long as you're skilled at intubation. Otherwise, if you're unskilled, then the other two are actually better than intubation. I'm leery of BVM without end tidal CO2. I think it's a crapshoot as to whether that is making things worse or better. And the timing, well, it doesn't matter how many hands you have because the doc who ostensibly is going to be doing the airway management uh, shouldn't be running the code from a time-dependent standpoint, and maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, so you could do it whenever you like. So once I've established the patient doesn't need a shock, I've gotten them situated, uh, good quality compressions are ongoing, uh, then I could throw in an airway. And honestly, I don't care if you do a supraglottic or an intubation. I'm not going to sit up there at the head of the bed and do BVM during an entire arrest. You know, again, the evidence doesn't say it's any worse, but it's just a pain in the ass, so why do it? Uh, especially when you just throw an eye gel in, and with end-tidal CO2, no, it's working. If it's not working, then you're obliged to intubate the patient. Yeah. Scott, can I just ask a question to clarify? I agree with you, like intubate or put the eye gel in rather than BVM. My question is, do you prefer that just because then you have a guaranteed seal? You know, the BVM, when they did these studies, was carefully monitored. And so if you are looking with alacrity that each breath continues to maintain the two-hand mass seal that is required, it's going to be as good. I just don't see that play out in actual real world. Uh, it's, it's a crapshoot breath to breath whether they're actually going to maintain that seal. And once the supraglottic or ET tube is in, the chances of that seal breaking are less. It's still not impossible with a supraglottic. If you tape it in right, it becomes less likely. Um, but I have to worry as code leader, I have to look up at every damn breath to see if my RT or my resident is continuing to maintain a good two-hand mass seal, I have to look up at the monitor and see if there's end-tidal CO2. It's an increased worry without gain. So if you were in somehow in a situation where they lost all the ET tubes and superglottic airways, sure, you can run a code BBMing throughout. It's an additional cognitive load for the team leader and the bagger that I just don't think brings benefit. And Dr. Weingart, if we are going to place an ET tube, do we do it while ch chest compressions are go ongoing? Do we do it during a pulse check? I mean, I personally do it while chest compressions are going. Again, chest compressions are the most important thing. And I've kind of had enough experience, I think, putting them in during chest compressions that so far so good, knock on wood, um, I've been able to sink the tube. What do you suggest in terms of, in terms of minimizing pauses in chest compressions, how to get that tube in? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and it, it, it mitigates the comments I made, if you feel the need to stop compressions to place an ET tube, then you should not be allowed to place an ET tube. Um, that should require your institution to use supraglottic airways during arrest. Uh, with video laryngoscopy and a bougie, there is absolutely no reason to ever stop chest compressions for intubation. And in fact, we disallow it. The only people allowed to stop chest compressions are the nurse code leader, doc code leader, the intubator. They could call for it all they want, and they will be roundly ignored by the compressors because they are not allowed to do that. If they cannot pass a tube during compressions, then you place a supraglottic airway. Now, in the case where you could do nothing, you know, you try bagging them, no end title, you try placing a supraglottic, no end title, you try intubating them during compressions, maybe. 
Uh, maybe I would countenance that, but I'd probably go up there myself and see what the hell's going on before I let that happen. So no, in my estimation, if you're intubating, it is during compressions, absolutely no stopping. And if you can't do it during compressions, then you either need better devices or better skill sets. Got it. I want to ask you also about sedation for intubation and cardiac arrest, which seems to be a relatively new idea. Uh, There's our favorite EM drug that we use for pretty much everything nowadays, it seems, ketamine. What's all this talk about ketamine for sedation in cardiac arrest? What's that all about? Yeah, well, there's an anecdotal phenomenon that Dr. Tillman probably won't like so much, but you'll see it all the time during mechanical CPR. We didn't see it so much during hand CPR, where the patients are 100% awake while the compressions are going on. And then you stop because you're like, what the hell? They must have ROSC. And they go dead again. And this is in really annoying and cognitive loading situation because what the hell do you do? Um, And it makes your intubation tougher because you don't want to stop compressions to let them be dead during the intubation. And you don't want them to be aware that you're actually putting a sledgehammer on their chest. So you need to do something. Uh, The something that makes a lot of sense to me is to give them ketamine. It's hemodynamics are uh, beneficial and it will knock them out, it'll dissociate them. And this is like kind of weird, but you might find yourself in that exact patient population if the ketamine is not enough to get muscle relaxation to place a supraglottic airway or your ET tube to actually give a paralytic in order to get intubating conditions. For me personally, I like succinylcholine, even though that is a drug I reach for never, um, but I'd like them to be uh, accessible as soon as possible. But most of the time what you'll find is ketamine alone is enough to both sedate them and allow the placement of an airway. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I would definitely say that probably some sedation is helpful in those patients who wake up. Uh, I've spoken with some of the patients I've treated for cardiac arrest. A, a vivid one for me is a physician who uh, explained to me she knew what was happening. We were doing CPR because she kept blacking out and realized she was dying. And that sounds like a terrifying experience, let alone everything else we're doing. Yeah, I like ketamine. I use a lot of ketamine, but I like the drug you're most comfortable with. And if that ends up being Atomidate, you know, what it does to sort of your downstream endocrinology as a single bolus, that's still ongoing. But if it's the drug your, your institution uses, you're probably going to do better with the drug you use as opposed to trying to learn a new drug. For me, that's ketamine. All right. I want to talk a little bit about hyperventilation because we know that hyperventilation during cardiac arrest is bad. How do you suggest logistically that we prevent hyperventilation during our resuscitation attempts of these patients? Yeah, I mean, the the real way that no one's going to like is to put them on a ventilator. And I know that's outside the uh, the realm of most people at most centers, but that's the smart way. It's the same thing as mechanical CPR. Like, let the machine that's good at doing things at a set rate do it. There's some provisos there. You need to know how to work your vent. You need to know how to make sure the breasts are actually going in, which end tidal CO2 provides. No one's going to listen to that. So forget I even said it. Uh, just you, you have to make the bagger count. We use Mississippi's in the United States. I'm sure there's a Saskatchewan maybe um, between uh, each breath. They have to count five of them and they have to say it out loud for the team or you need some form of timing device. The paramedics in New York City, they have a like two cent light that blinks every six seconds. But you need some external marker of time because what adrenaline does is it eliminates your true perception of time. So you think you're bagging eight times a minute and you're bagging 60, 120. That completely kills the physiology of compressions. If there is any downsides to these advanced airways, it's that when you used BVM, it forced you to do the 15 compressions to two breaths and therefore you couldn't hyperventilate the patient. 
and when an advanced airway is placed, some would argue it's only when an ET tube is placed, some would argue that superglottic is there as well, then you're supposed to do it asynchronously. That's where the problems start, and that's where I think you either need an external marker or the counting. Um, Post-ROSC is a whole different topic, and we could expound on that, but that would be an entire discussion of ventilatory management that I think would be outside the realm of this uh, discussion. Got it. Let's talk about end-tidal CO2 monitoring. It's pretty much mandatory in cardiac arrest care for very good reasons. You know, it helps confirm tube placement. It helps guide ventilation rate. It helps guide chest compression quality. It helps identify ROSC. And it helps guide decisions about stopping CPR as well. What are some of the nuances you can suggest about when and how to use end-tidal CO2 and when it can lead you astray? Thinking of where the numbers I've seen lead astray is when you see that jump as maybe a hint that the patient has obtained ROSC is sort of stopping your standard ACLS protocol being like, oh, the end tidal changed from 20 to 30, therefore we should now stop compressions and stop doing everything we're doing right now. And that goes back again to what Scott was saying about how it's just another piece of information. It is not It's not the be-all, end-all. So that's the mistake that every now and then happens is people start to start to stop. It's a good, good term there. Doing the things we know work in cardiac arrest because they prematurely assume that the cardiac arrest situation has ended. So don't, don't do that. Check the pulse. It's an important thing. Or use an ultrasound and look at the heart. Or both. That about wraps it up for part one of our two-part podcast on cardiac arrest. We hammered out the when, how, and why of chest compressions, of defibrillation, of cardiac arrest drugs, and of airway management. With some really interesting discussion there and some controversies still. I can't wait for part two when we talk about communication strategies, POCA strategies, hemodynamic monitoring, mechanical therapies, and knowing when it's best to call the code. So thank you all very much, Dr. Gray, Dr. Weingart, Dr. Samar, Dr. Tillman. I can't wait till part two. Thanks, Anton. I can talk about ACLS all day long. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Bye. Bye.